Well, this week we are back in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, and we are picking up where we left off a couple of weeks ago, uh, just the, the Sunday after Christmas, uh, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Again, this morning's passage is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, uh, the end, through the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. Please listen attentively to it. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. And that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we ask that You would provide us with wisdom and illumination as we look into Your Word this morning. We thank You for this passage that the Apostle Matthew has written by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask, O Lord, that You would use it as You have used Your Word again and again to sanctify us and conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ so that in the end, Your name might be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but it seems like it has gotten worse in the last year. It seems as if there have been a spate of celebrities who have been involved in one scandal or another, and it has been exposed to the public, and then begins this process again and again. How many times can we count it? Over the last year, we've seen sports stars, we've seen uh, television celebrities, we have seen politicians who have, have, who have sinned in one way or another against their wives, who have taken illegal drugs in order to, perform, to enhance their performance on the field. We have seen it again and again. And the answer, it seems, that has been provided to us by the media is that these individuals need to do what is called an image rehabilitation. I don't know if you've heard that phrase. Look it up on Google sometime. It's used quite frequently. 
Image rehabilitation. It's used as in, okay, here are the five things you need to do to rehabilitate your image. And usually that involves sitting on a couch on Oprah's show. But I ask you, does it do any good? Is it the real answer to the problems that these people are facing? And I would also like to point out that this is something that is not only happening with those who are involved in recent scandals. It happens with people who were involved in scandals thousands of years ago. And the case in point this morning is Herod the Great. Attempts have been made to rehabilitate his image as one who was a great architect and a great planner and a great ruler of Judea and the Jewish people. Now just over a year ago, National Geographic magazine had a cover article dedicated to Herod and his architectural achievements. And in the article was this statement, which I want to read to you. Herod guided his kingdom to new prosperity and power. Yet today he is best known as the sly and murderous monarch of Matthew's gospel who slaughtered every male infant in Bethlehem in an unsuccessful attempt to kill the newborn Jesus, the prophesied king of the Jews. Herod is almost certainly innocent of this crime, of which there is no report apart from Matthew's account. Now this is not something that is novel to National Geographic. If you look in theological dictionaries, you look in commentaries, many of them will say, the only account of this is in Matthew's Gospel, so we can't believe it. There's no other evidence that this actually took place. But it's interesting that the author of this article would say this, and then immediately following the statement, he would say, he would give a quick list of all the things that Herod did do. Such as murdering his wife, murdering his children, murdering anyone who posed a threat to his throne and to his kingdom. What about Herod made it impossible that he would do such a thing as to slaughter innocent children? Why would this author make that statement? Except only to discredit the Bible and to discredit the the gospel of Matthew. And the author of this article is counting on the fact that people will focus on this statement. They even have it, the editors decided to, to put it up in big font right in the middle of the, of the article. So you see it. They want you to focus on that statement and forget about the fact of what, Herod, what other things Herod did, which were atrocious in our sight. And that is the key to rehabilitating one's image, isn't it? The key is that people will soon forget. And that is the advice to these celebrities who are involved in any manner of scandal. Lie low for a little while. Don't let anybody see you for a little bit. Issue a statement through a, through a PR guy. And then in about a year, go on Oprah and confess and, and act repentant. And you're okay. Or act, act, I should say not repentant, but, but at least sorrowful for what you've done. And we cynically look at this, and rightfully so, as just an attempt for them to retain their endorsement contracts and hopefully not be kicked out of office for those politicians who have been involved in these schemes. Well, the problem with this, the problem with image rehabilitation, is that it does nothing about our sinfulness and guilt before a holy God. It does nothing for that. The forgetfulness of people does not equal the forgiveness of God. God's forgiveness comes only by being washed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as it was shed on the cross. 
And so as we consider this passage this morning, I want you to think about this. This passage calls us to confess Jesus as our King and our Savior who gives salvation to everyone who repents and believes in Him. This passage calls you and it calls me and everyone, in fact, to confess Jesus as our King and our Savior who gives salvation to everyone who will repent of their sins and believe in Him. Well, I've divided this passage into three sections. The first section is into exile, verses 13 to 15. The second section is uh, entitled, From Weeping to Gladness, and that is verses 16 to 18. And then finally, the third passage, The the Despised Branch of Jesse, verses 19 to 23. Again, into exile, verses 13 to 15. From Weeping to Gladness, verses 16 to 18. And The Despised Branch of Jesse. Verses 19 to 23. Well, let's look at this section I've titled Into Exile. Verses 13 to 18. It's been a few weeks since the last time we spent some time in Matthew's Gospel. But you will remember that we spent a little bit of time talking about Herod and and looking into what he was doing in his plot to kill the king whom the wise men came to worship. You see, Herod felt that his own kingdom was threatened by this little baby. And so he asks the wise men, as they come to find out where this king lives, he asks the wise men, go and find him and come back and report to me and let me know where this baby is so that I too may go and worship him. Well, the wise men went and worshipped Jesus, but they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And so they went back to their own country by a different route. In verse 13, we read that Joseph was also warned in a dream. He was warned in a dream by an angel of the Lord to rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. You almost get a picture of that, of that section in Revelation which talks about the dragon pursuing the woman and her baby so that he might devour them. This is King Herod. Well, Joseph did as he was commanded. He took Mary and Jesus, he departed to Bethlehem under cover of night, and he went into Egypt. And Egypt was a logical place for them to go. The border of Egypt was only about 70 miles from Bethlehem. It wouldn't have taken them too many days to get there, even if they were walking. There was also a large Jewish population in Egypt. And so they could go there and live among the people. They probably even had relatives in Alexandria that they could be with. And as verse 15 says, they remained there until the death of Herod, which might have been a couple of years. He died shortly after this episode. But they were safe. But there was another reason that God sent them to Egypt rather than this logical, these logical reasons. And that, the second part of verse 15 spells that out. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew is quoting Hosea 11 verse 1 here. Hosea 11 verse 1 was written after the Israelites had come out of Egypt in the great exodus when they fled Pharaoh. They crossed over the Red Sea on dry land. God is is speaking through Hosea about how He loved Israel as a son and called Him out of Egypt. This is not a predictive prophecy about Israel, is it? It's looking back. God, in a sense, is reminiscing through the prophet Hosea. 
But let me ask you this. What is the larger context of the book of Hosea? What is the larger context? You've all read it. The larger context is one of Israel and Judah's unfaithfulness to God, isn't it? God commands Hosea to take a wife who is a prostitute. He has children by her. He names them such things as, not my people. (laughs) He is showing that this is an unfaithful and stiff-necked people who have resisted Him again and again. Hosea 11 verse 2 says, the more they were called, so God called Israel out of Egypt. 11 verse 2 says, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. The broader context of Hosea clearly shows that Israel, those people who crossed the Red Sea, that Israel could not be, is not the true Son of God. How do we know this? Because the true Son of God will be obedient to everything that He has commanded. And so 11 verse 1 can only be speaking of one person. The Lord Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. And so you see Jesus by taking refuge with His parents in Egypt as Jacob and His sons had done thousands of years before shows that He is the true Son to whom Hosea is referring. Matthew here is demonstrating that Jesus is true Israel. Jesus is the Israel of God. And if Scripture speaks of Israel as God's Son, it can only, ultimately and primarily, be speaking of Jesus. And only derivatively can it speak of of the church as Israel. Well, something else to think about as we consider this first section is that even at this early age, Jesus is standing already in the place of His people as their substitute. Already as a child, as not much more than an infant, Jesus is substituting Himself For Israel. His work as the substitutionary atonement for His people has already begun. And so when Jesus came up out of Egypt, this prophecy of Hosea was fulfilled. And Matthew cites that as proof, again as proof, that Jesus is the Messiah. The long-awaited Messiah. Let's turn now and look at verses 16 to 18, which I've titled this section, From Weeping to Gladness. Well, the wise men showed their wisdom by not returning to Herod. And when he found out that they had tricked him, he was furious, it says. And verse 16 says, And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Now, in the previous section, Matthew clearly showed the parallel between Jesus going uh, to Egypt and the Exodus. And in verse 16, he is making a parallel here between Jesus and Moses. In Exodus 1, you can turn there if you want, we read that just prior to Moses' birth, a new Pharaoh had risen to power. He was a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And he saw this ever-increasing population of Israel and Egypt as a threat to his kingdom. He was afraid that they would soon reach a point where they would overpower him, where they would overthrow him, and that someone, a Hebrew, might be installed on his throne. And so what did the king do? 
But you remember, he commanded the Jewish, the, the Jewish uh, excuse me, the Jewish mid, mid, midwives when they were delivering a baby, a Hebrew baby, they were to kill every male baby they delivered. And the text says there in Exodus 1 that the midwives feared God and they did not do what the Pharaoh had commanded them to do. Well, Pharaoh then commanded the Egyptian people because his plan with the midwives didn't work. He commanded the Egyptian people that whenever they saw a young Hebrew male child, they were to toss that child in the Nile River to drown. This was the way that Pharaoh dealt with it. And so out of this, you, you're introduced to Moses who was placed in the river by his mother. Herod was just as deliberate in his murderous scheme as Pharaoh had been. When Herod realized what was going on, when he realized that the wise men had fled, verse 16 says that he calculated the age that Jesus likely was. And he sent men to kill all the male babies who had been born, who were two years old and under, in the region around Bethlehem. Now given the small population of Bethlehem and its surrounding regions at that time, the scholars suggest that the number of male infants who were killed would have probably been somewhere between 20 and 30 children. It's still a significant number. It may not be as many as you thought it would be, but it's still a significant number because we believe that one child is precious in the sight of God. And so it is no surprise that as the National Geographic article says, Herod is best known for this incident. It's no surprise, is it? Because it's an atrocity that he carries out. The killing of one baby, much less dozens, is a heinous crime. And the historical records of Herod, which, Herod, which are extensive, thanks to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, give no indication that Herod ever repented, that he ever showed any signs of remorse for what he did. In fact, Josephus wrote that just five days before Herod died, he was on his deathbed, he ordered the execution of one of his sons who he thought was trying to take the throne from him. Every indication that we get from historical accounts is that Herod died in an, an unrepentant murderer. And so God protected His Son from this man. He ensured His safety. And He did this by sending them to Egypt. He sent them there for refuge. He protected His Son and yet these children still died. And this is a very saddening fact to us. And it's saddening to, to Matthew, who under the, uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote uh, in verse 18, as he quoted Jeremiah, he wrote this, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is Jeremiah 31, 15. Now if you read Jeremiah 31, 15, if you read the, the, the surrounding context, you'll find that it is God who says that it's Rachel who is weeping. And you remember Rachel is the favorite wife of, of Jacob. She was the mother of Joseph and of ben Benjamin. And she died just after giving birth to Benjamin, at least a thousand years before this prophecy was spoken by Jeremiah. So was Rachel really weeping? <laughs> She wasn't alive then, but the Lord says she is. And in the wider context of Jeremiah, the Lord says Rachel is weeping not because her children have died, 
But it's because they've been driven from the land. They've been driven into exile. They've been driven by God into exile because of their unfaithfulness to Him, because of their disobedience, because of their unwillingness to behave as sons of the Most High God. And Jeremiah 10 verse 18 says something about this. It says, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time, and I will bring distress on them that they may feel it. It is God who drove the people from the land. And it is God who says that Rachel weeps over this. Now perhaps Matthew records this prophecy of Jeremiah with a dual purpose. I think he does. Rachel laments the senseless deaths of these children. But she also laments the departure of her true son, Jesus, from Bethlehem to go to Egypt. Rachel laments this. Just as the Israelites were driven into exile, Jesus was driven into exile. And Rachel weeps. Now it should be noted that Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. And Matthew understands that even though Jeremiah, uh, though in, the, in Jeremiah the Lord says she is weeping because her children have been driven by the Lord into exile, now we understand that she weeps because Jesus has been driven out of the promised land as a result, not of His own sinfulness, but as a result of the sinfulness of God's own people. Now many of you are very familiar with Matthew chapter 31. But Jewish readers at the time of, excuse me, of Jeremiah chapter 31, Jewish readers at the time that Matthew was writing would have known this chapter backwards and forwards. And they would know that Jeremiah is primarily, Jeremiah 31 is primarily about God turning weeping into gladness. In the very next verse of this chapter, verse 16, God commands the people to keep their voices from weeping because they will come back from the land of the enemy. And the main point of Jeremiah 31 is that God will restore His people to the promised land. He will bring them home. How will He do this? How will He do it? Through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. You remember Jeremiah 31, 31 talks about the new covenant. The new covenant. And that new covenant is sealed by the blood of Jesus so the fulfillment of this prophecy comes. The return from exile comes only when Jesus Christ comes to earth. And this is why we are called now to turn from our weeping to gladness and to worship the One who delivers His people from exile. Now section 3, the despised branch of Jesse, verses 19-23. to Joseph sought shelter for Jesus and Mary. And in verses 19 to 20, we read that when Herod died, an angel of the Lord once again appeared to Joseph in a dream and let him know that it was safe for him to return to Israel. Herod the Great was dead. So Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they came out of exile in Egypt and they returned to the promised land. But verse 22 says that when Joseph heard that Herod's son, Archelaus, was ruling over Judea, he was afraid to go there. And Joseph was right to be troubled. Archelaus uh, is also uh, has, has a count in Josephus' Josephus's history. And he is one not to be trusted as well. He shared all of his father's negative qualities. And he may have sensed the same threat that Jesus posed to his father. 
So Joseph was again given a revelation and a dream, and he withdrew from Judah, Judea, and he went to Galilee. Now just a little background about the Galilean district. It was still under the rule of one of Herod's sons, Antipas. Antipas was outside the control of Archelaus. He was less of a threat. And so Joseph thought it was wise to go there. And he decides to settle in this town, this town, Nazareth. And this was a small town. It was a good town to settle. It was an agricultural town of somewhere between 500 and 1,500 people. And it was close to the larger town of Sephorus, which had been burned to the ground early in Jesus' childhood. So Joseph, who was a carpenter, he lives in the town next door to the one who's been burnt, which has been burned to the ground. He's got to work. He's got a way to support his family. But Matthew doesn't focus on these logical reasons for why Joseph would choose Nazareth to live. He focuses on the theological reasons. Verse 23 says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now this is the third time in 11 verses that Matthew has quoted prophecy. The fifth time in two chapters that he quotes prophecy. But there's one big difference here than those other four times that Matthew's already quoted prophecy. No specific verse in the Old Testament contains this. It's not there. You can look. There's no specific verse that says that Jesus will be called a Nazarene. So what do we do? It seems to present a problem to us, doesn't it? And if it's not obvious by now, it will be as we continue through this gospel that Matthew knows his Old Testament Scripture well. He knows it backwards and forwards. Matthew did not make a mistake here. And he didn't make something up. He's not trying to mislead his, his readers. His Jewish readers would know if he was fabricating something. Matthew introduces this quote differently than he has any of the other quotes. And this is significant for how we understand this. The other quotes say, uh, uh, they say that they were quoted by a prophet. They say, spoken by the prophet. Such and such in many cases. Here, Matthew says, spoken by the prophets. He's more general. He's a little more vague. And here he is referencing the general teaching of multiple prophets in the Old Testament. And he is also probably using a play on words here. Now, as we know from Scripture, Nazareth was regarded, uh, was regarded poorly by those who were outside of it. Nathaniel in John verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 46 says of Jesus, Can anything good come from Nazareth? It's looked down upon. It's a little podunk town. It's, it's a nothing town. You go nowhere if you're from this town. And so again and again people say, Is this guy, isn't he the guy that was from Nazareth? Even the people of Nazareth don't think anything good about him. And you see this similar kind of rivalry between big cities and small towns or the country and the city, all of these things. They still exist today. It's nothing, it's, it's nothing that has fallen out of, of the way things are. And indeed... It was prophesied of Jesus that He would have no form or majesty that we should look on Him. No beauty that we would desire Him. Instead, it is prophesied that He would be despised and rejected by men. That He would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Just as the town of Nazareth was despised by the people in Israel, Jesus was despised. And so it is fitting. It is fitting 
that this is the town where Joseph and Mary and Jesus Jesus settle. Nazareth seems like the perfect town for the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 to call home. Well, Matthew quotes the prophets as saying that Jesus should be called a Nazarene. And here's where the, the play on words comes in. You see, Nazarene sounds very much like the word, the Hebrew word for branch, which is netzer. And it is used in Isaiah 11, verse 1, which says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It's very common for biblical writers to play on, use, use wordplay. You see this in that first chapter of Exodus. When Moses is born, and he's, excuse me, the second chapter of Exodus, he's drawn out of the water. And so the woman names him Moses. And if you, many of your Bibles have a footnote, and it says the word Moses sounds like the word for to draw out. Often names in Scripture are plays on words, although they may not mean that. They may sound like a word that means that. Matthew is telling us that the one who is called the Nazarene is the Messiah of Isaiah 53 who will be despised and who will be rejected. And to confirm this, Isaiah 53 says of the Messiah, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the ground. Now the Hebrew word for branch is not used here in Isaiah 53, but the connection is undeniable. It's there. When you read that passage, you think back to Isaiah 11. So Jesus is indeed. He is both the despised and the, and the rejected branch of Jesse. What needs to be mentioned here, that, that to reject Jesus because you think you don't need Him, or because you think He was no greater than any other religious leader, or because He's a Nazarene or, or whatever, is to despise Him. To reject Him because you don't believe in Him is to hate Him. It is the sin of unbelief. And this is no less a sin than Herod's attempt to slaughter those babies. The outcome will be the same if you do not repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You will endure eternal judgment for your sins. But there is hope. It is difficult for us to imagine a greater, a worse crime, a greater atrocity than the slaughter of a child. But I can tell you that had Herod repented of his sins before his death, had he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the very one who he desired to kill, he would have been forgiven. He would have been forgiven. Murder is not the unforgivable sin. And if Herod would be forgiven, then we who sin against Jesus can also be forgiven. It is not enough for you to try to rehabilitate your image. It is not enough to count on the fact that people will inevitably forget the things that you have done. It is not enough to move from one town to another to leave your past behind you. Why? Because God does not forget. He doesn't forget. 
Even 2,000 years has not been long enough for Herod for people to forget what he did. And like Herod, if you die in your sins, you will be eternally punished. But if you are genuinely repented, if you turn to the Lord Jesus, no matter what you have done, there is no sin that is too great for the grace of Christ. If you turn to Him, repenting of your sins and believing in Him as your Savior, you will be saved. You can believe this because God's Word tells you that it is true. Not even the worst sins imaginable will be enough to prevent you from being saved by your loving Father if you turn to Him in faith. Let's turn to Him in faith now and pray to Him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do indeed come to You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You again and again offer us the opportunity to hear the call of the Gospel and to turn to You in faith and repentance. And we pray, Lord, those of us who have embraced Christ, we pray, Christ, we pray that You would call us to renewed obedience to all that You have commanded. Help us, O Lord, to walk like Jesus so that we may indeed be called the Israel of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.